Okay, the only two announcements I have are just a reminder of the annual congregational meeting, which will be Sunday morning, February the 5th, following the morning worship service, and then the Chafer Conference coming up on March uh, 13th through 15th. And that, um, we encourage everybody locally to go ahead and register. We need the head count uh, for planning for the food and planning for the snacks and things of that nature. So I understand that we've already had a really... A good start to registration. We have quite a few that have signed up already, and we're reaching out into some uh, various other communities as well uh, to help people focus on these very important contemporary issues. I think that not only is inerrancy an important issue uh, for understanding the Scripture, the confidence that we have in Scripture as the Word of God, but also how we interpret it. That's really an important, a very important segment of the battle, is how do we understand what God has said, and can we have systems of interpretation that violate, that contradict what the text is actually saying? And that's going on today in many of the evangelical seminaries that fought the battles for inerrancy in the past, uh, they've, they've chosen a systems of interpretation that in, in essence uh, basically uh, deny what the text is saying. For example, they use systems of interpretation on Genesis 1 so that it's no longer talking about God's original literal uh, six consecutive 24-hour days. Uh, so it's a full compromise with... with um, um, with evolution. So we need to understand these things. So it's going to be a great conference. Look forward to seeing how many people are here and how it goes. Uh, also, kind of an interesting thing, I'm going to be away for a short time next week, just overnight uh, at the end of next week, but there's a um, Grace Evangelical Society is having a conference in, uh, I found out, in San Antonio. And Dr. Ice and Dr. Fruchtenbaum are two of the speakers, and one of the speakers is taking an interesting view of Matthew 24, which is why I'm going, So, uh, since that relates to our, our ongoing study. So <clears throat> that will be at the end of next week, and if we have listeners who are there, you can go to the uh, faithalone.org website, and they have information about that uh, that conference. So there are... At least two good speakers. Bob Wilkin will probably do good. The whole conference is on eschatology, so it should be pretty good. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Well, Father, we're so we're so grateful that we can come together tonight to reflect upon your word. We're grateful that you uh, forgive us our sins, all because Christ died on the cross, paid the penalty, so that by faith alone in Christ alone, trusting him, we have eternal salvation. And then when we confess sin, it's simply a reminder of what he has done and that we have been the beneficiaries of his work on the cross. And because we have uh, positional or eternal forgiveness, we have temporal forgiveness for our sins. Father, we're thankful that we can come together to study your word. May we be reminded that this is your word and not our word, not my word, not our opinions, but this is what you have revealed to us. And as Peter's talking about, it focused tonight is how we can really have a happy life and understanding what that is as opposed to the ephemeral emotional um, highs or happiness or uh, different feelings that come our way that we that we associate with happiness, that this is something much greater than that and how we can have a really truly stable life. And we can only do that as we submit to your word. We pray that you'd help us to understand the word and that we would be objective in listening to the teaching of your word and responding to God the Holy Spirit as he teaches us that we may change, transform, and renew our minds. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in 1 Peter, and I've titled this lesson, How to Inherit a Blessing, because at the end of chapter 3, verse 9, uh, Peter says that you may inherit a blessing, that that's the purpose clause for the entire sentence of verse 8 and verse 9, where we read, finally, all of you be of one mind. We talked about these these words last night, what they meant, be unified, thinking in the terms of the mind of Christ, that all of us are submit to the word of God. That is where we have unity. It's not unity for the sake of unity. That's one of the problems with uh, theological liberalism is that we are the expectation that everybody's just to, supposed to agree with each other or and 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 not have any differences no we don't have differences because we all submit to the one truth the revealed word of god and that we're to have a compassion for one another a genuine compassion not a pseudo compassion that just makes people feel good but a true genuine care uh, for one another and that's expanded even further as brotherly love philadelphia so that that is related to family love a familial love just as we have uh, love for one another in our family so we have love for one another as believers and that we are to be um uh, tender-hearted. I pointed out that last time that that is not the main idea there, that the main idea has to do with hum- genuine uh, humility. And all of this comes out of, flows out of a group of commands, four commands that Peter gives in 1 Peter 2.17 to honor all people, love the brotherhood, the same verbiage that we have here, uh, fear God, or respecting God and honoring the king. And so that involves, as we see after that, a series of of uh, participles that are translated 
uh, as imperatives in the English, but the participles are designed as a way of showing how we fulfill or implement those four imperatives into our lives. We are uh, to do it by, by servants, by being submissive to masters, wives by being submissive to husbands, and husbands by dwelling with their wives with understanding. And so in we, as we've gone through those sections, then Peter ends with this statement, sort of summing it up before he transitions. He says, finally, all of you be of one mind. This is fulfilling these imperatives of verse, uh, verse 17. Now, I pointed out last time that this is just another application of something that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 4, but specifically here in Luke chapter 6, where he says to his disciples, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. This is just the opposite of what is the natural inclination of the sin nature. We don't want to do good to those who hate us. We want to retaliate. We want to somehow get back at them. We want to avoid them. We want to do any number of negative things to them, but we are to do good. It is a positive term in terms of uh, providing something of benefit to those who hate us. It's, you know, some people have gotten the idea that loving your enemies is just the, it's something passive, the absence of mental attitude sins. But what we see here is no, it's not. The, the Bible never looks at it just something passive as the absence of mental attitude sins. It is something positive of doing something beneficial, doing something constructive. We are to be a blessing to those even though they uh, revile us or hate us or have caused uh, different things to us. Contextually, verse 28, bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. And this isn't talking about um, uh, praying a curse on them or some sort of uh, judgment upon them, but praying that they would be blessed, that God would provide for them, and that they would come to an understanding of the grace of God. And then in verse 29, to him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. This is an idiom. It wasn't that Jesus doesn't say this because you had a problem with people uh, walking around in Judea, slapping each other on the face. It's a clearly an idiomatic or figured figure of speech. And it refers to uh, being insulted or are taking offense over something that uh, appears to be an insult. So to the one who appears to insult you, the one who denigrates you, the one who says something that you could make take offense over and make a case about, offer the other one also. In other words, don't make an issue out of things that can be a distraction to the gospel, a distraction to the spiritual life, and a distraction to the ministry in the body of Christ. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. The tunic was the lengthy undergarment that was worn under a robe or under under a coat. So it's always going a step further. And the best illustration, if you're going to teach the principle of 
of unconditional love or um, impersonal love, we call it that sometimes, emphasizing that you don't necessarily have a personal relationship with the other person. It's the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Samaritans to Jews were were some of the worst people in the world. They had a a profound uh, bias and prejudice, a racial prejudice against Samaritans. I think that the average Jew's view of a Samaritan was on the order of the average Ku Klux Klansman towards someone of African descent. They hated and despised them. And so Jesus tells this story where the Samaritan's the hero. I mean, that must have just blown their minds. And uh, the, the Samaritan is the one who comes along, and there is this victim of highway robbery, literally. He's on the road. Uh, and down towards Jericho, and he is attacked, and he's ambushed by by robbers, and they they steal everything. And so this Samaritan comes along, who's just by virtue of their their thinking the worst of the worst, and he picks up the uh, victim, he cleans him up, he bandages his wounds, he gives him his own clothes. See, he's not just saying, oh, that poor Samaritan, and praying for him. He's not just having an attitude of passivity, no mental attitude sins. He is doing something. He's engaging this person who who despises him. He's engaging him and doing everything he can to help him. And then he takes him to an inn and he pays for his night at the inn, provides for him and takes care of his food and everything so that he can survive and go forward. And that is the, apart from the cross, that is the best illustration of love, of impersonal love, because he doesn't know him. There's not a personal relationship there. This isn't some friend. This isn't some acquaintance. It isn't, you know, some servant of somebody he knew. He has no knowledge of who this person is. So that is the the illustration in Scripture for unconditional and impersonal love. So this is to be the mentality of the believer. It's radical and it's revolutionary. And what we have to understand is that for any of us as human beings with a sin nature, that nothing is probably more difficult for us than being kind to someone who despises us or whom we think despises us or someone who has done something that in some way hurts us or harms us. And um, this is a situation where Peter's talking about the fact that we need to respond in kindness and generosity in the midst of a wicked and hostile opposition uh, where we experience tax uh, attacks and maybe just pure spitefulness or meanness. And this can happen in any kind of situation. It can happen in families. There are certainly circumstances where someone becomes a believer in a family and family members turn against them. I've told you uh, I'm reading a biography right now called Chosen Fruit, which is about the life of Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And he came to uh, an understanding of the gospel just before he was bar mitzvahed, about the time he turned uh, 13, 
And his father was a secular Jew. His father was an atheist. He had turned his back on religion because of the Holocaust, even though, and, and even before the Holocaust, he turned his back on religion. Their, their, their family for generations, this was their, their business. They were uh, some of the most significant uh, leaders in their sort of sect of Judaism in, in Poland and highly respected and, and they produce scribes and scholars and, and not just rabbis, but the leaders of a movement would be called a Rebbe. And he was more than just a rabbi of a, of a synagogue, the leader and teacher of a synagogue. He would be the leader, leader of a movement. And so this was passed down from father to son, to firstborn son for uh, many generations. And then, uh, Arnold's, um, uh, grandfather had just completely rejected it totally, and then his son he died young. His son was reared by the grandfather uh, or the great grandfather, and he too uh, rejected it. But nevertheless, when Arnold became a Christian over a p- period of uh, two or three years, his father's hostility and antagonism to him increased more and more until a point when. When uh, Arnold came back from a Bible memory camp, uh, by that point, the family had moved to Los Angeles. Arnold came back for his senior year, and it was really sort of a blessing in disguise. His father decided not to talk to him at all, just ignored him, acted like he did not exist at all. And so the next year went by, but of course, um, that was a blessing in disguise because he wasn't uh, verbally abusing Arnold anymore. He wasn't attacking his religion. He wasn't telling him he couldn't do anything or go to church or associate with Messianic Jewish groups. And so Arnold was able to develop some fellowship and some uh, Christian uh, friends and go to church. But this is the kind of thing that was clearly experienced by these Jewish background believers to whom Peter uh, was writing. So there's hostility from outside the church within families and in workplaces, and that can be seen today uh, more and more uh, from governments uh, to neighbors. There can be all sorts of environments. And the Bible makes it very clear that the standard protocol, the policy for members of God's royal family is to live and respond and react in ways that are described as love and kindness and generosity, that believers are always to take the high road, never take the low road, Uh, always take the high road no matter what uh, the point is, because we become at that point a visible evidence, a visible witness of the kind of love that's demonstrated uh, at the cross. And so Peter is returning to this theme, dealing with living in a hostile environment. And he's going to quote for us in verses uh, 10, 11, and 12, uh, Psalm 34, 12 through 16. And we studied Psalm 34 in the context of of Samuel just a few weeks ago, but we're going to go back and look at it tonight uh, in in another light. But it is clear, I've read through several commentaries who have done just sort of a granular analysis of all the different ways that Peter is uh, says certain things, uses certain words in First Peter that indicate that 
Peter has been thinking about, meditating on, reflecting on Psalm 34 as a backdrop to what he is saying to these uh, church-age Jewish background believers who are living in a hostile environment, making that uh, application across time from David in in the midst of the Philistines in in Gath, something we're still studying because Tuesday night we're talking about Psalm 56 when David is captured by the Philistines in Gath. And so we're still looking at that uh, that that same scenario. So it's not an uncommon scenario for Christians down uh, down through the ages. So Peter is really focusing on this, and uh, as he addresses this in verse eight, he emphasizes these five qualities to be uh, in harmony with one another. Uh, sympathy meaning understanding the suffering of the other person, putting yourself in the place of the other person and how they uh, how they are responding to the circumstances around them. Uh, brotherly love, being kind-hearted uh, to one another. And then um, verse... Uh, at the end there being courteous, which is a terrible translation of the uh, Greek word uh, tapinephron over here on the right, which means to have genuine humility, uh, to that we are to submit to authority. Now, he doesn't state what that authority is, but that authority ultimately would be the word of God in terms of how we deal uh, with other people. And so as he gets into these verses... Uh, we read in First um, Peter three nine, not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. So in what we return is blessing. That's the same thing we saw in Luke chapter six. Uh, on the contrary, blessing because you know that you were called to this that you may inherit a blessing. Now, that's an important phrase. We have to understand what that means. What is the this? We were called to this, to return blessing for evil, or we were called to inherit a blessing. Which is it? Now, we can answer that only through syntactical analysis and looking at other ways in which uh, this kind of uh, structure is used, especially by Peter. Now, 1 Peter 3.9 is already, that, that language has already been established because at the end of chapter 2, verse 23, he talking about Jesus, he said, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. That's the pattern. The Lord Jesus Christ is always our pattern. He is the one into whose image we are being conformed. So we look at how he reacted to those who insulted him, those who belittled him, those who mocked him, those who beat him, those who uh, ridiculed everything he stood for and, and, and everything that happened going to the cross, he did not react. He, like a lamb before cheers, is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He um, did not revile when he suffered. He did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So he understands that it's got to be turned over to the Lord. You just move forward and move on, but but we have to focus on, on the judge who judges righteously and let him handle whatever injustice 
uh, we think. It's not up to us. It's up to God. First Peter 3, 9, then, when we look at how this uh, verse is uh, uh, set up, uh, basically what, uh, what we see is uh, in, this, in the structure of what's coming up is this shifting term to how we handle injustice. That's been a major part of the, of the epistle up to this point. But this whole topic of handling injustice, uh, hostility that's not deserved, becomes part of the, the topic down through uh, chapter 4, verse 19. So we have to go from uh, where we are now in 9 down through verse 22 of this chapter and then down to the end of chapter, uh, chapter 4. And so the illustration uh, he goes to is going to be in, uh, listed there in verses uh, 10 through 12, coming from Psalm 34, 12 through 16. That fits the circumstance perfectly. Then he's going to talk about suffering for righteousness' sake, uh, quoting from Isaiah 8, uh, verse 12, down in verses uh, 13 through 17. And the theme there is, for it is better. If it is the will of God, that is, if God directs you into these circumstances, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Okay, that's always tough because our, our sin nature, our arrogance, our self-righteousness immediately uh, it gets inflamed and we want just this isn't right. And so we insist on our own righteousness and that's where we get out of fellowship. And so he says it's better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing wrong. And then look at verse 18. For, look at that first word. You ought to circle it. Whenever we see a for, that we have to say, what's that there for? Okay, see, that's a little twist on when we see a therefore, we see what it's there for. This is a for, so we have to see what it's there for. It is to explain something, and it always explains something previous. And so the illustration for suffering for doing good is Christ. He not only did good, he was perfect. So he suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. So once again, we're back to the cross, and that that just skewers all of us. Whatever rationale we come up with to justify whatever behavior we've had, it always falls apart when it comes up to the cross because Jesus handles everything the way we are to handle it. And so that's the the next section that takes us from 18 uh, through 22. So we get into some interesting uh, Christology there, as well as understanding some things about the days of Noah and also what appears to be a rabbit trail. We talk about baptism, and that's in verse 21. Then we get down into uh, chapter 4, and Peter's going to return to general Christianity general principles of the Christian way of life, ending once again with God's gracious outreach of the gospel to undeserving people, unbelievers who are what? Hostile to God. So it's always dealing with people who aren't responding favorably to us, people who are hostile to us, and how we are to go the extra mile in being kind and generous to them. 
And so in the last section then, he returns to the theme of being reproached for the name of Christ and not suffering for the wrong for wrongdoing, but doing that which is right uh, and righteous. Um, so verse 19 of chapter 4 states, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. We are to respond by doing that which is good. So, first of all, got three or five points here in summary of the overall context. First of all, the situation he's addressing is these believers who are facing rejection, insults, defamation of character, verbal abuse, hostility, all from unbelievers from outside the family of God. And it wasn't uncommon in that day because Christianity is this new religion. It wasn't accepted as legal uh, as such in the Roman church, although, at, I mean, in the Roman uh, culture, the Greco-Roman culture. But if this is such an early stage, it was still viewed as being part of Judaism. But they were getting reaction from their fellow Jews. So the typical response in that culture to someone who insults you, someone who defames you, someone who ridicules you, was to strike back, to retaliate, to return evil for evil. And what does that do? That just escalates things. It just, it just goes from bad to worse, and it doesn't resolve anything. It just uh, deepens the, the antagonism. And um, uh, one writer said, given the tendency of human nature to retaliate, coupled with the social expectations to do so, because that's what's socially acceptable in a Greco-Woman culture, the Christian who refrains from verbal retaliation and instead offers blessing would give unbelievers pause. Okay, now think about that. It's part of our testimony. Now that testimony, why would we do that? Well, contextually, what is the motivation for doing this? Where do you find that? In the last clause. That your, excuse me, in the last clause where it says that you may inherit a blessing. So it takes us back to inheritance. Inheritance is a focus of what, we talked about the uh, spiritual skills, the problem-solving devices. What is the problem-solving device? What's the spiritual skill that's related to inheritance? You remember? Do I have to go back and reteach problem-solving devices? It's related to the first four are related to what? Faith. Then you have the hinge one, which is your personal sense of your eternal destiny. What's our eternal destiny? It has to do with inheritance and ruling and reigning with Christ. And the word there is hope. Our confident expectation, that's the first chapter in and first part of, of, of First Peter. And so we have this, this hope. And so we're doing this, we're being obedient because of the hope that we have directed towards the future and our inheritance. So hang on to that word hope. Now, you're doing this as a uh, in order a, a, as part of your visible testimony. This, this, this expression of your hope. Skip down to verse 15. We'll get there in two or three weeks. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the 
hope that is in you. See, you need to draw a circle around the word hope in that verse and connect it back to verse 9 that you may inherit a blessing and that in turn is going to be related to the fact that for husbands you need to live with your wife in an understanding manner because she is a fellow heir so you have inheritance there that your prayers may not be hindered okay so all that ties together so when we do not behave as culture and as our sin nature Uh, thinks is normal, then it's because we are realizing, living on the basis of this hope of our future expectation. And when people see that we don't live that way, they're going to say, why? That's what 1 Peter 3.15 is talking about. They'll ask for the reason for the hope uh, that is in you. Okay, so that shows how all of these little threads here uh, fit and connect together. So... When we look at um, when we look at at First Peter three nine, we're not returning. The word for returning is that word on the left. It's apodidomi, which means to pay back or to pay recompense. It would be like paying a salary to somebody or paying wages due somebody. You do this, I'm going to pay you a certain amount. So somebody does something wrong to you, then you uh, pay them back, you uh, repay them in the same negative manner. And reviling is the word on the right, uh, loidoria, which means uh, you insult for insult, reproach for reproach, verbal abuse for verbal abuse or cursing or reviling. Uh, That's all the idea there. And so by not doing that, it's a visible testimony of the grace of God. So in the second point here, this applies in terms of interpretation to unbelievers because that's the environment. So this is like an a fortiori argument. If we as believers are to respond like this to those who are outside the family of God, to those who are unbelievers, then how much more should we apply this to other believers who are within uh, the family of God? Because you know, strife and difficulties always uh, breaks out with uh, other family members. It happens in our uh, natural family. It also happens in the body of Christ. Third thing is the foundation for understanding this is Christian or biblical love, a term that we have got to come to grips with in living the Christian life, that this is unconditional, it's impersonal. Uh, It doesn't... You know, we have such a problem in our culture with love. We think of love as having a, a an emotional attachment to somebody that is more or less a, an intensified form of liking someone. I like you. I like you a lot. I like you very much. What's the next stage? I love you. Like, if like becomes intense enough, then it's love. And it's this emotional attachment. That's not the biblical concept at all. The biblical concept has to be grounded in John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. That's where we get our picture. How do we visualize love? God loved the world in such a way that he gave his unique son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, how, is, how do we see love there? God is doing the right thing for his creatures. 
God is doing the best thing for his creatures. God knows exactly what they need, and he is doing the highest and best for them. That is the core idea in love, is acting correctly, rightly, in the best interest of someone else. But as soon as we use that word best interest, somebody's going to say, well, wait a minute. If it's the best interest, who are you to determine what my best interests are? Where are you getting that value? And for the average person, the best interests that I have for you are just what you know, are my own selfish desires. But that's not what this is talking about. Uh, it's talking about having an external standard, which is the character of God, so that only when we understand the integrity, the righteousness, the justice, of, and the love of God, can we come to any understanding of what is best for other human beings. That gives us an objectivity. What is best for you isn't what is best for me. What is best for you is what is determined to be best and right for you according to the standard of God and what God expects from each of us in our behavior. And so that means that we are all being held to this higher standard that is the, that is the character of God. So when we get involved in any kind of situation where we're being insulted or attacked or somebody's ridiculing our faith, our natural response from the sin nature, I think, is self-justification. And whatever we're going to do, it's going to be okay because look at what that sorry son of a gun did to me. That justifies it because they hate the cross, so that justifies that kind of a behavior. But what we're doing is we're letting our emotions override our the thinking, what we know to be true in the Scriptures. And whatever emotions are generated in us in circumstances, the issue in loving one another or loving your enemy is to subordinate our feelings and our emotions to the right thing that Scripture says we are to do. That becomes the, the, our marching orders. That's the code of conduct for the believer. That is our protocol. That's our policy. And so we are to uh, love them. As we say, saw in the illustration I used earlier of the Good Samaritan, which is in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. If you haven't read that in a while, I encourage you to do that. I'm not going to take the time to go through that uh, tonight. Now, a fourth thing we have to think about when we're talking about what this Christian love, biblical love is, is it's not something that you and I can just manufacture on our own. It's not something that if we just grow enough, mature enough, uh, that we can do this, that if we just go to enough self-help classes that somehow we can do that, that that if we read enough uh, uh, self-improvement books or take enough psychology classes, uh, motivational classes, that somehow we can we can rise up to this level. Because the Bible says it's a fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, and 23, this is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the first fruit of the Spirit. And it's mentioned there because about uh, seven verses earlier, six verses earlier, uh, Paul quotes from Leviticus 18.13 that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. And then he says, goes into this, what appears to be a rabbit trail, where he says, but walk by the means of the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walking by means of the Spirit had to be introduced there, because the only way to fulfill the command to love one another is to do what? 
It's to have it produced by the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit that produces love. We can't gen, gen this up. It's not something we can manufacture. The spiritual life is not difficult. It's impossible. It's only when we're walking by the Spirit that God the Holy Spirit is able to transform us into the image of Christ. And so that it, what this means when it's talking about uh, dealing with other people in terms of having one mind, having compassion, or caring for one another, uh, loving them as a brother, being tender-hearted, being being humble, that we can't do that on our on our own. This all exemplifies love, and it means it's more than just saying you don't retaliate. It's more than saying you don't do something or say something verbal or react physically or otherwise, but that we return good, something positive, for evil, we are to bless, and so this is what is going on here. We are not to return or retaliate in kind, but on the contrary, in other words, just the opposite. We are to bless. That that it means we are to do something positive, uh, coming from grace to provide something uh, beneficial. For someone, a blessing means to invoke God's goodness and his kindness on someone, to be the physical representative of God's goodness and kindness in somebody else's life. And then it says in that last uh, verse, the, the purpose clause there, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, this is, um, uh, or excuse me, it says, because you know, excuse me, I skipped ahead to the last clause. The, the next to last clause is because you know that um, that you were called to this. Because you know that you were called to this. Now, the text that we have in English just translate that, that participle as knowing this, but it's actually a causal participle. And the reason you're able to do this is because you know some doctrine. You, you've been taught something, you know something in your soul, and you know that you were called uh, to this. And uh, we have to understand what the this is. Is the this giving a blessing to somebody? Were you called to give a blessing to those who uh, revile you? Or were you called to inherit a blessing? Now, see, it could go either way. It could go either way. Now, so we have to look at this and analyze it. First of all, calling in Scripture always relates to a purpose God has for our life. We are called to a purpose, Romans 8, uh, 28 and 29. We are called to a purpose, and that, according to that context, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're to see his character in our life. That's the fruit of the Spirit, his character in our in our life. Uh, we have a number of passages in Scripture that talk about this is the will of God for you. Uh, give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God for you. Isn't that easy? Have you ever noticed that the statements that say, this is the will of God for you, are not easy? They're difficult. They can only be produced by God the Holy Spirit. This is another one of those that's saying, saying you're to return blessing for reviling because this is what God called you to do. God gave you this mission to do this. This is your 
personal marching orders from God is to react with blessing to those who revile you. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't care for that. Um, but that's what God said, so we have to submit to that authority. That's the issue in in the humility here, is to submit to his authority and and make that a part of our life. We were called to this. And when we have this phrase, for this, and in the Greek it is a combination of two words, ace and tuta. Tuta means this, and ace indicates a purpose or end result. Uh, grammatically, it could refer to something before or something after. But Peter uses this phrase two other times. He uses it in First Peter uh, 2.21, for to this you were called. And there it clearly refers to uh, being servants being submissive to your masters as described in verses 18 through 20. So there it clearly refers to what has already been said. In chapter 4, verse 6, he says, For this reason, the gospel, and that's for this reason, is the same phrase. And that refers back to what was said in verse 5. So in both instance, other instances where Paul, uh, Peter uses this phrase, it points backward, not to what he is about to say. So that would read this way. Don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, return blessing because you were called to return blessing for evil. That's your purpose. And the reason that you were called to return blessing for evil is so that you could inherit a blessing. Now, remember, we've talked about this many, many times. That there's two categories of inheritance for the church-age believer. There are those, that ca- there's that category of inheritance that refers to what we all have, heirs of God, that's true for every single believer. Those are possessions that are ours by virtue of our position in Christ. We are... Uh, given eternal life, we are united with Christ, we're going to be raised at the rapture from the dead, or we're going to be transformed at the rapture and go to be with the Lord in the air. Uh, we are going to be judged at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. For those who have been obedient and grown and, and, and grown uh, spiritually, and, and God is going to be very generous and gracious with us at the judgment seat of Christ from how he has judged and evaluated others that are mentioned in Scripture. You know, go to Hebrews 11 and look at all the times Abraham failed, all the times David failed, all the times Jephthah failed, and Gideon failed, and all, Samson failed. Samson was a horrible failure from what we are told in, in Judges. Samson didn't do anything right. But obviously he must have because God lists him there as a hero of faith in, in Hebrews chapter 11. So what that tells us is that God, the way God is going to mete out judgment to us is going to be very, very gracious at the judgment seat of Christ because he knows what we're made of. And it is Christ who is our brother uh, who, is going to, uh, who is going to judge us and evaluate us and if we have walked with him, if we've been obedient and to how what outserved him, however we've done that, remember that's all done by the power of the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, then the result is a second category of, of uh, inheritance, which in Romans 8 is defined as those who have suffered with him. 
Well, that's those who are returning evil for evil, those who are returning reviling for reviling. That's a form of suffering. Those who have been insulted for Christ and they have not retaliated, that means you get an overcomer blessing. We've studied overcomers in, in Revelation before. So that is, that's the picture here. And Peter is making this very clear that this is talking about uh, rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. It is not talking about what every believer has in common. And I want to remind you of a, of a passage in Colossians 3.23 that says, whatever you do, whatever you think, whatever we say, whatever we do, whatever we are involved in, do it heartily, do it fully, um, as to the Lord, not to men, we're, all, we're doing this to serve the Lord and to respond to our Lord who paid for us, who bought us, and who gave us this great salvation, because we know that from the Lord, we will receive the what? The reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord. That's what we, we ought to wake up every morning and think, Today, I'm serving the Lord. I may be going off to work for this company or that company. I may be working for myself. I may be a father. I may be a mother. I may be a child. I may be a student. I may be a teacher. But I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing to serve the Lord. And if I serve the Lord, then at the judgment seat of Christ, I will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now, that's not a gift. A reward is not a gift. Salvation is a gift, but rewards are earned through obedience. So this command to return blessing and good for that which is evil is related to serving the Lord in this life and being a visible testimony of his grace and his goodness and the reality of the hope that is within us. And now at this point, Peter introduces us to a quote that, that, that is from David. This is David thinking through the implications of what he has gone through in, in Gath and how he's not only been praising God, in the first part of Psalm 34, but in the second part, he structures it as, a, as an instruction to those who listen to his psalm and, and read his psalm. And he says, for he who would love life and see good days. Now, if I were in a certain kind of church, I might say, oh, everybody here who wants to love life and see good days, raise your hand. And they do that. I've been in Bible studies like that. Of course, everybody, no matter what they want, is going to raise their hand because nobody wants to be singled out as not wanting that. But if you want to have good days and love life and have a quality of life, it's not dependent on those external circumstances. It's not about having a certain kind of car or certain kind of clothes or living in the right neighborhood. It's about having a capacity for life and and in in your soul that if you would do that then we're going to get some instruction uh let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit so the first is to avoid sins of the tongue second let him turn away from evil and do good notice again we have this idea of it's not just resisting evil, it is actively engaging in doing righteousness, pursuing righteousness, and doing that which is good. And then it says, let him seek peace, 
and pursue it. Now, it's one thing to say, let him seek peace, but pursuing it involves an act of aggressiveness to pursue peace and harmony, to pursue peace and, and do it. For why? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. You know, a simplified form, God is watching you. God is taking account. That's what we're going to see in Psalm 56. I talked about it last time, that God watches us. He, 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 it's pictured metaphorically in Psalm 56 as, as he keeps an account in his book, and he keeps our tears in his bottle. Uh, he is keeping track of the the heartaches, the difficulties that we go through. He is not uh, he is not immune to our suffering and our difficulties. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous; his ears are open to their prayers. But notice, there's a contrast here. On the one hand, those who are turning away from evil, doing good, seeking peace, pursuing it, uh, refraining from the sins of the tongue, God is open to their prayers. But on the other hand, those who refuse to do that and take the path of carnality and the sin nature, the Lord is against those who do evil. So in context, because this is talking about prayer as part of this, God is. this is one of those passages saying, if you're not obeying the Lord, God's not going to listen to you. He's not going to listen to your prayers. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who've reacted to that over the years. I remember back in the 80s, there was a, a president of the Southern Baptist Convention who said, God doesn't hear the prayers of the Jews. Y'all remember that? And there was such an uproar over that in the national press because liberals want God to listen to everybody's prayers because we're so sincere. You know, God honors our sincerity. Well, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Jesus, since people are sincerely wrong, and God is going to judge them and punish them. So God is not impressed with our sincerity. And so there are some people he doesn't listen to. And this fits the context. Notice this is summarizing things. It fits the context because we're just told back in verse 7 that if husbands don't treat their lives right, God's not going to listen to their prayers either. So God clearly take, chooses when he's going to listen to prayers. The psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. This isn't just a Christian New Testament teaching. It's talking about the fact that if a person isn't rightly related to God, rightly adjusted to the righteousness of God, either at salvation or in his spiritual life, then God's not going to listen to him. So as we look at this quote, I want to remind you of a couple of things from Psalm 34. First of all, David wrote while he was surrounded by hostile enemies. He's in the Philistine city of Gath. He's been captured by the Philistines. He prayed, he cried out to God for his blessing in, um, in, in Psalm 56. And then because God listened to him and delivered him in, in Psalm 34, he praises God. Now, Peter is writing to Jewish believers who are scattered amidst a, a hostile culture, hostile to Christianity, and he's encouraging them to live above the circumstances and on the basis of, of Christian love and on the basis of hope. 
So just a reminder in uh, Psalm 34, in the first 10 verses, we had declarative praise where David uh, vows his praise to God, calls on others, invites others to join him in praise He descri- in verses 1 through 3. Then he described God's deliverance in verses 4 through 7. Then he exhorted others or challenged others to trust God in the same way for protection and provision. One of the things that's probably scariest for people is if somebody has, especially you think about being in an environment where a Roman soldier is threatening you because you are a Christian, the last thing you want to do is do something that would put your, that would bring any attention at all to yourself and might put you in a position of being more vulnerable. You'd be scared to death. You'd rather go hide behind a tree somewhere or, or, or become a flower on the wall or whatever. But here, uh, David is saying you're to trust God for protection and do the right thing. You know, give them a glass of water, uh, encourage them, uh, witness to them. Uh, and you, there were many examples of that kind of thing that happened, especially we can think of recent history in the Third Reich. People who gave the gospel to Germans, some were killed for it, some were not. But that is what love does and is obedient to the Lord. Uh, B, the descriptive praise then begins in the last half, verses 11 to 22. In verses 11 and 12, we saw that David calls upon others to learn and experience God's goodness. That's the focal point. So they need to learn to fear the Lord. And this, then there's these couplets that we saw that come after that that focus on teaching, giving instruction to other believers in reference to wisdom. So in verses 11 and 12, David said, Come, you children. Uh, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That's what he's getting ready to do in that context, teaching us to respect the Lord and to submit to him. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? That's how David starts. He's going to hook us by saying, by offering those rhetorical questions. Everybody wants a good life. Everybody wants happiness and stability in their life. So if this is what you want, then this is how you get it. And he gives us then, in the next uh, couple of verses, some some things to uh, uh, think about. He's talking to them as children. Uh, they are so- literally sons. So as we see, I'll pop through this outline again as fast as he'll put it up on the board. Um, we get down here in the second part. David instructs others of God's goodness to the righteous and those in need. Ultimately, as we saw when our study of Psalm 34 in the first Samuel series just three or four weeks ago, it's about relying upon the goodness of God to do the right thing. So what are we to do? Verse 13, keep, which means to guard. It's, It's the Hebrew word here. It's natsar, which means to watch over, to keep your tongue from evil. That's one of the hardest things in life to do. Every one of us falls into the trap of sins of the tongue day in and day out. It is, uh, it is warned against, as we'll see again and again in Scripture. Guard your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. That's a synonymous parallelism. So guarding your tongue, 
guarding your lips because it's your tongue and your lips that form the words that lead to uh, verbal sins and sins of the tongue. Uh, evil and speaking deceit are synonymous there and reflecting. So he says, first of all, you have to control your mouth. You have to be careful what you say and what you don't say. And that is very hard for a lot of people. Uh, they can get themselves into a lot of people. James says the tongue is a world of fire. It sets the world aflame because once you say things, they can't be taken back. And then, so, so David goes on to say, not only control your mouth, but depart from evil and do good. So you have to change. There's a transformation that only God can produce. That's Romans 12, 2, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Depart from evil and do good. It's a positive thing. It's intentional. It's thoughtful. It involves planning. You want to do something good and gracious and kind uh, to the person who's done evil to you. And then he says in the second stanza, seek peace. Peace is more than just an absence of, of friction. It's more than seeking peace is more than an absence of, of uh, conflict. Uh, it's, it's the Hebrew word shalom. And the Hebrew word shalom in, indicates wellness or wholeness or healthfulness. Uh, that's not help, H-E-L-P, but health, H-E-L-P. H-E-A-L-T-H. It's a healthful, positive, beneficial environment. So seeking peace or wholeness and then to pursue it, to be aggressive, to make sure that peace takes place. Okay? Uh, this is uh, stated in many places in Scripture. Proverbs 4.24, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. We need to be careful with what we say. Proverbs 3.10, I mean, 1 Peter 3.10 and uh, 11 just quotes from this. He would love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. And then he says... In verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. All of that we've already seen in the original context of Psalm 34, uh, uh, 12 14. Um, then in verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. God's our Father. The eyes of the Lord refer to his knowledge, his omniscience. He's aware of all of our thoughts, the intents of our thought, and it's his word. The word of God exposes and divides between the thoughts and intents of our heart. For the eyes of God are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. In uh, the original context of 3415, it says his ears are open to their cry. It's the crying out for deliverance. His ears are, are, are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord that's talking about his, usually his favor, but it can also be his judgment. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's not distinguishing between unbeliever or believer. It's distinguishing between those who do righteousness and those who don't. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. Notice all these phrases, the ears of the Lord, the, his, I mean, the eyes of the Lord, his ears, the face of the Lord, all relate to his personal 
involvement in our lives and uh, making various decisions there. Anthropomorphic terms, remember, an anthropomorphism is attributing to God human physical characteristics which he does not actually possess in order to communicate to human beings the plans and policies of God. So the idea there is his, he's looking at us, he knows about us, he hears us, he pays attention, and he is, he's watching us. And so uh, he is going to be the one ultimately to bring justice. Now, the next thing that we need to cover, and we don't have time for tonight, is a, a review of the doctrine of the sins of the tongue. And that is very much a part of what is going on here and what we need to be reminded of so that when we are in situations where we're facing this ho- these hostile attacks, especially in terms of government, we hear so many things that go on today, and I don't know about you, but I get angry, I get resentful, all of these things pile up in my soul, and that's just the opposite of what should be there when we are walking by the Holy Spirit, we are to respond with grace, and that should we our words should be uh, characterized by grace and kindness, and not by anger and resentment and, and bitterness. And so we have to understand why the sins of the tongue are self-destructive, and we'll do that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, and to to realize that this is your word, and it's given to. Wake us up to the, our own self-destructive behavior that our own sin natures can lead to not only self-destruction but, but uh, manifold ways of self-induced misery and that when we take the path of obedience to submit to you to return kindness for evil, then we will always be provided for by you and when we return blessing for evil, then again, this is what will bring health to our own souls and health to the souls of others. And we pray that we might keep that in mind and focus on that, that only God the Holy Spirit can produce it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.